Bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, the simplest cloud platform out there. And we're excited to share they now offer dedicated virtual droplets. And unlike standard droplets, which use shared virtual CPU threads, their two performance plans, general purpose and CPU optimized, they have dedicated virtual CPU threads. This translates to higher performance and increased consistency during CPU intensive processes. So if you have build boxes, CI, CD, video encoding, machine learning, ad serving, game servers, databases, batch processing, data mining, application servers, or active front end web servers that need to be full duty CPU all day, every day, then check out DigitalOcean's dedicated virtual CPU droplets. Pricing is very competitive starting at 40 bucks a month. Learn more and get started for free with a $100 credit at do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Practical AI FM. And now onto the show. Welcome to another episode of the Practical AI Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Benson. I am the Chief AI Strategist at Lockheed Martin. Today, I am uh, recording live from the O'Reilly AI Conference in New York City. Um, The date is Wednesday, April 17th, when we're doing the recording. And I have the great privilege today of having a conversation with Ben Lorica. And did I get your last name pronounced correctly? That's perfect, Chris. Okay. Um, And Ben is the Chief Data Scientist for O'Reilly Media. He is also the Program Chair for the Strata Conference and this AI Conference. Um, And uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, really hoping to cover a, a bunch of different topics and stuff, but I, I noticed I wanted to start out with uh, that I noticed that you had put out a publication uh, through O'Reilly called AI Adoption in the Enterprise. It's an ebook that I know that, that our listeners can go uh, and, and download, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and I was just wanting to is, see if you could kind of give us a little overview of, the, of, of what you're covering and maybe do a couple of deep dives. And to at least uh, tease everyone on what you've what you've hit in the book. So I think uh, at a high level, we wanted to understand uh, the state of adoption of AI, which for the most part uh, these days refers to machine learning technologies. And so uh, the the first thing we did was we tried to get people to kind of self-describe their level of maturity. So uh, at a high level, so we we. We consider uh, people with mature practice to to be companies that have certain number of years of having models in production, and then uh, and then uh, on the lower end we have companies who are just at the evaluation and exploring stage. So if you take these two buckets, you know, mature and exploring, so yeah. a couple of interesting things that jump out. One is a uh, uh, level of investments, uh, planned level of inve- investments. Uh, the people, uh, the organizations with uh, mature practice, 
uh, plan to invest a substantial amount of money compared to uh, uh, the ones who are still in the exploratory stage. And do you think that's mainly just because they're still kind of convincing themselves, proving out the technology and its usefulness, or? Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, but uh, so uh, before I uh, dive into that, so I, uh, for us that seems to indicate that uh, maybe the gap between the leaders and the laggards may. Uh, uh, widen a little more as far as machine learning. So as far as uh, what are some of the key bottlenecks that uh, the respondents uh, uh, cited. So again, there's a distinction between those in the exploratory stage and those with mature practice. The ones with, in the exploratory stage cited uh, problems identifying the right use cases and, and, and company culture, right? So convincing people uh, to invest in AI technologies. Sure. The ones who are who consider themselves more mature uh, cite lack of data. So they may have uh, an idea, but they haven't quite collected the right data to execute on that project, and lack of skilled people. Gotcha. And you're so. Are you saying that even the more mature ones are struggling with lack of data at this point in the survey? I, I think that I think that uh, uh, or just the company is always. You know, so so once once you start down the machine learning and AI path, uh, you probably start uh, generating ideas and use cases because you get gain more confidence. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, for the uh, for many of these use cases, you may not have the right data yet. Right. Gotcha. So you, you have to start uh, generating the data and then execute. So could you, could you kind of just taking that a little farther, could you kind of describe maybe what a typical, uh, on the forefront, those who are kind of leading the way and are making the investments, what some of those may look like based on what the survey results showed um, in terms of uh, d did, you, did, you, did you go into use cases in it at all or just talking about whether or not they were making the investment? So we didn't uh, have them describe their use cases, so, but uh, I think um, at a high level, so the more advanced companies are probably using uh, more deep learning these days, right? Sure. So, so I think that uh, uh, companies who have existing machine learning products or applications uh, have been evaluating how deep learning can either augment or replace their existing systems. Sure. So this, this uh, uh, applies not to kind of the traditional areas where you that you associate deep learning with, like computer vision or speech, or, or even text, but uh, uh, problems that involve structured data, like recommender systems and, and time series forecasting. Um, so I think companies are, are beginning to examine whether or not deep learning can play a role in, in uh, improving those systems. Um, and then the really bleeding edge companies, I think, are beginning to examine uh, machine learning against live data, and now you're starting to enter the world of reinforcement learning. So I don't know if you were in the keynotes this morning, but uh, Tony Jabara from Netflix talked about uh, their work in, in uh, uh, adding contextual bandits to their recommender systems. So now you're beginning to uh, enter the world of reinforcement learning, which I think uh, it's super interesting. Uh, at this conference, we had a tutorial on an open source project from UC Berkeley called Ray mm -hmm. from Rice Lab. Okay. And it's a, uh, it's a distributed computing framework uh, that you can use for a lot of things because it's got uh, uh, a certain amount of flexibility. 
so people, uh, so uh, the Rice Lab team have written some libraries on top of it, including one for hyperparameter tuning. They have a, a library on top of it called Modin, which for people in the, who are listening who are familiar with Pandas in the Python world, mm -hmm. so Modin is basically uh, Pandas on Ray, which means it runs faster on your laptop and it automatically scales to a cluster if you needed to. All you need is to add one line of code. And then uh, it turns out the most, uh, the most popular library on top of Ray is RLlib, which is the, the reinforcement learning library. And so what's uh, nice about this is now reinforcement learning becomes a library that you can just use. If you're a developer, you don't need to write your own algorithms. So the experts can use uh, Ray to, to write algorithms. And in fact, what, they're, what they've designed uh, Ray so that both users and reinforcement learning researchers uh, uh, can find utility in it. So uh, it, it's, a great, it's a great new project to pay attention to. No, that sounds and great. And so, oh, so one thing, uh, one thing I, I should add is that actually Ant Finance, which is the largest unicorn company in the world, it's a financial services in China. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know the exact valuation, but I think it's over 100 billion. <laughs> wow, big. Uh, yeah, and uh, so they're, they're using Ray in production in multiple use cases. One of them is uh, real-time personalization recommendation. So, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you talked also about some of the ones that were that we're just exploring still, um, and I know I know in this book that you guys put out, you also talk about you know some of the things that are holding back adoption of AI. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Because actually, you know, I, I know that we have a lot of listeners in a lot. You know, some of them have been doing it for a while, but we also have listeners who are trying. One of the reasons they listen is to try to kind of figure their way into the space. What what have you found on things that are holding back adoption of AI? So as I cited, so the the people in the valuation say, stage cite uh, uh, problems identifying the right use cases. Yep. Which to me points to uh, one thing, Chris, that I think sometimes we undervalue, which is the need to educate uh, not just your developers and engineers about machine learning, but your organization, right? So your managers and decision makers. Think about uh, when uh, we started talking about big data and how data can drive decision making. Well, you had to educate your workforce about how to make decisions using data. So I think the same thing with machine learning and AI. Uh, there's a certain amount of education that needs to be done so that uh, uh, your organization is aware about what's possible, what are the limitations, and uh, uh, what are the requirements for some of for the technologies that we have today. Um, and then the second the second uh, main bottleneck they cite is related to this as well, which is basically. Uh, just convincing the rest of the uh, company, so company culture, about uh, investing in AI. Sure. Um, and so one of the things that we found is that the companies that seem to have uh, taken initial steps and succeeded in terms of uh, using machine learning and AI, they tended to build on existing uh, Analytics infrastructure. Uh, Just kind so, of so you iteratively have, moving it on. Yeah, up. so you have yeah. data that you were using for something else. You maybe you start using it for machine learning and AI. Uh, 
layer a, a bit of machine learning on top of your uh, uh, decision making. So, so doing that iteratively in that way is probably kind of one of those success factors and that instead of starting something entirely new, yeah, like, you're taking uh, an existing like you, team. Yeah, you might want to, you might tell yourself, oh, this computer vision is cool, let's do a project in computer vision. But then now you have to gather the data, develop kind of the expertise on how to store that data. And so maybe you're better off starting with uh, uh, things you're already familiar with. Uh, and, and, and the rest of the organization already appreciates whatever KPIs you have. Sure. So maybe uh, improve those KPIs by layering in this new technology. I, I know speaking from personal experience in industry, um, you know, getting, getting the data that you need, um, I, I have a, uh, one without naming the company, it was a, a company that I was uh, working for, and the, the CTO of the company said, we have all, all the data you could ever want. Uh, the thing that I found in reality was it wasn't the right data for doing the kinds of projects that we wanted. Um, and, and, so, and then a lot of other companies simply don't have the data pipelining at all in, exactly. in position. Um, any, any thoughts toward what, what companies can do in terms of getting that kind of prerequisite uh, work done so that they can get to productive machine learning afterwards? So one of the things that I've been trying to socialize and evangelize is that uh, if you want to build an organization where you can have a sustainable machine learning practice, you can't ignore some of these foundational technologies that you described. Right? Yeah. So things that uh, you might find, they're not, what does this have to do with AI, right? So like data integration and ETL, Absolutely. Uh, data governance, data lineage, um, and, then, and then, so th that's, that's the, the data aspect of what you need to do. But then it turns out machine learning, uh, people are realizing requires some special tools for machine learning development, right? So one of the most popular open source projects over the last year is a project called MLflow uh, out of Databricks, which full disclosure, I'm an advisor to. Um, <laughs> okay. It's a 10-month-old project, and uh, it's basically a project which has three components, and you, you can use any of the components but it's meant to facilitate ML development. Okay. So within 10 months, over 200 companies are using it. Oh, that's they, fantastic. They have update. contributors from over 40 companies. And then um, what they're finding is one of the most popular component of MLflow is the component that helps you track and manage machi machine learning experiments. Um, and so then, so then there's the whole tooling for uh, uh, helping you develop machine learning. But there, I think as if you, if you look ahead, if you use more and more machine learning and machine learning becomes more and more important to your company, the models themselves will become kind of assets that you have to manage. Just like you have data and data assets and a chief data officer, or data governance, data yep. catalog, will have to have tools for model governance, uh, model operations, right? So monitoring, tracking, uh, alerts, dashboards for different personas, right? So uh, business users may have a dashboard for tracking models. The data engineers may have their own dashboard. The data scientists may have their own dashboard. But also just a catalog listing all of the models, their state, who built them, all these things.
This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. StrongDM makes it easy for DevOps to enforce the controls InfoSec teams require, manage access to any database, server, and any environment. And in this segment, we're talking to Jim Mordko, VP of Engineering at Hearst. He's sharing how they're using StrongDM within their team of 90 plus engineers. It now takes them just 60 seconds to offboard a team member from a data source. We have an engineering team of somewhere in the area of 80 or 90 engineers. Because we've got so many services and many databases um, and so many developers, we need a reasonable way to manage access to them. Uh, it was it was a somewhat painful and you know labor-intensive process. Uh, our DevOps team uh, would literally have to manage every one of the permissions for everybody who wanted access. Um, so strong DM has been a real godsend in that area for us. Requests for access to specific databases were pretty much manual. Now we've adopted strong DM. It's something that you don't even know is there. Once it's installed, it just works. It's very simple. Um, we've set up a multitude of data sources so that when somebody's onboarded, we just give them access to strong DM. It's pretty simple. Um, our DevOps team, um, they have a very minimal effort required to enable each data source to be connected to strong DM. And then installing the client software is uh, it's very, very very simple and straightforward. You can use whatever client you want to to talk to the database. So there's really no training necessary. All right, if your team can benefit from nearly instant onboarding and offboarding that's fully SOC 2 compliant, head to strongdm.com to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com. To extend that a little bit, um, I, I've also seen that uh, people uh, not only are they are they not necessarily ready for that as they're trying to get an operation up and running, but they'll also uh, not have really thought their way through how do you get the model back into a software stack and usable out there in a product service, you know, whatever your target. Uh, environment is that you're going to get that model into and what's the process and so not only is there a whole uh, aggregate the data you need get the right data uh, get it into the right form so that you can use it for training but then afterwards when you have uh, a model that presumably you may be iterating on having that feedback loop that goes that not only places the model out there into the target but also is is pulling it back in and any advice on how people should be thinking about about actually productizing uh, their model putting it into production yeah, that's an interesting question because uh, traditionally data scientists uh, have been somewhat uh, not involved with deploying uh, these models and uh, uh, these analytic products into production. Um, and in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, we started notice, noticing in the Bay Area a new job role uh, with the title machine learning engineer. And, and this role sits somewhere in between data science and uh, uh, data engineering and data ops. So uh, the focus of this uh, machine learning engineer is to productionize uh, ML models. And so that means that they're stronger on the software engineering side and data engineering side, but they have enough data science knowledge to build some of the uh, more routine models. And then, uh, uh, so we started hearing about this role a couple of years ago, and then and about a month ago, I, before uh, our Strata Data Conference in San Francisco, I threw up a Twitter poll, 
because uh, I've been hearing that uh, uh, data scientists were rebranding re themselves somewhat into the, a machine learning engineer. Because a machine learning engineer, anecdotally, I think is higher compensated. So I, I, the poll question was clear and, and simple, which was uh, if two years ago you were describing yourself as a data scientist or using the title data scientist, what are you using today? And so I found over a, over a third said they're now using the job title machine learning engineer. So now it, it might be the case that uh, uh, some of the data scientists have uh, upskilled their uh, software engineering skills and become machine learning engineers, but there might also be a, a cohort of them who are uh, who, who have uh, rebranded themselves. Now the other thing too is that uh, the tools for going from a model that's a prototype to production. Uh, so there are startups and companies uh, trying to build tools to kind of uh, uh, blur that distinction so that data scientists who are working on an internal data science pl platform where they can collaborate uh, can take those models and deploy them into production systems. But uh, traditionally the production systems are, uh, are are uh, run and managed by a different team, and uh, and you know, I mean, uh, data scientists don't normally wear pagers and get paged when something goes wrong. Right? That's so, true. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think that so whenever someone tells me that you don't need uh, to make this distinction, I always ask them. So, do your data scientists wear pagers? <laughs> That's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> yeah, so you've kind of gone into uh, into talking about how roles are changing, and so I, I'm going to ask you a little bit about skills and skill gaps, and I actually uh, want to lead in uh, a little bit. I, one of the things that I have noticed in recent years as, as uh, I've been part of organizations that have uh, started to turn that corner and try to set up their own uh, AI operations um, and, and, and make those happen was that um, the in a lot of cases, the data scientists that were already there had no experience or real understanding about deep learning as they were trying to, to ramp up, and that it was certainly a distinct skill set from things that they had done in the past. Um, what, you know, speaking towards that, and as well as the, the general set of skills that it takes to make all this stuff happen in this space, um, what are you seeing? What are the gaps? What, what, where, how are people managing that? So first off, the, the, the job title data scientist has kind of become confusing to some people. So uh, I will not name uh, uh, these companies, uh, but they're in the Bay Area. One is in social media. One is in, uh, one is in, uh, one is in car, uh, ride sharing. So I'm not going to name them. But inside these comp inside many companies, the term data scientists increasingly refers to two types of people, right? So one is a business analyst, business analytics, mostly does SQL type of work, uh, and then the actual data scientist who does machine learning. Yeah. But to us on the outside, when we see uh, Ben is from company X, he's a data scientist. Uh, so I've complained to my friends, I said, it's confusing for us on the outside because if you guys have really two different types of personas, then you should give them two different titles, right? So, but uh, I think the fact that uh, data scientist is a hot title, hot title, so then they they have to kind of uh, incentivize their employees, right? I, I, yeah, I, it, one of the things, it's, it's interesting, I think when people talk about the need for skills in this area and, and that they need more people to do it, I certainly 
sympathize with that. But I, I've also I, I I've come to where I uh, a perspective where I'll disagree with people who say there's not enough data scientists in the world, and because I think that's fragmenting. I think this kind of catch-all position called data scientist um, that was once one thing, and now that we're moving into the space, is becoming uh, a number of different you know specific roles that people are taking on in the future. Right, right, right. So as, and then uh, to answer your question about deep learning, right? So. Uh, when I first started uh, focusing on deep learning in 2013, um, so there weren't the open source libraries we have today that are well documented yep. with uh, uh, easy to use examples that you can get started with. Um, so it was uh, uh, mostly confined to a few research groups. You literally had to apprentice with one of these re, uh, research groups because a lot of it, a lot of the knowledge was passed through oral tradition. Yeah. So these days, of course, we have uh, good libraries like TensorFlow and PyTorch and BigDL and a bunch of other libraries uh, that have documentation and the researchers in the academic and the industry labs tend to publish their papers and, and have code uh, that you can uh, start to play with. So there's some so yeah. there's some notion of uh, of a running start. Uh, you have. A, you, I was just going to say since uh, since I can say that for you, you have media companies like O'Reilly Media that right. are putting out great material on this to learn by. Right. Exactly. And then uh, so then uh, the question is: uh, Are those uh, is that material enough uh, for companies? I think that uh, uh, to the extent that the the pre-built models, pre-built architectures, and pre-trained models. Uh, apply to their domains, uh, yes. So for example, uh, if, if what you need is a, is a uh, speech-to-text tool, maybe m many of the existing off-the-shelf or cloud services will be enough. But you know, take, a, take a data type like text, right? So uh, last year was a big, big year for natural language models and, and research, right? Yeah. But if you dig, if you drill down, right? So uh, many of the models were published with code. Some of the uh, models are even pre-trained, so you can use them. But then uh, they may not be quite tuned to your domain. So, sure. so for example, if you're in healthcare and you want to use one of these pre-trained models, well, even within even within healthcare and medicine, different. Areas of specialization have very different lingo and shortcuts for how they communicate with each other, right? Yes, that's true. So you might still need staff who are capable of doing some of this uh, tuning and retraining and things like this. So, how, and how does domain knowledge about that, since that's kind of what we're getting into at this point, how, how do you overcome that? Um, you know, is it, my next question was going to be, you know, how are organizations kind of using AI and all that? But, but you're kind of pointing out uh, another one. You know, we've talked about several of the challenges on making all this stuff happen. And, and that is one, is being able to marry your domain knowledge in very specific areas to the people, the teams um, of, of uh, people in the, in the data science space, whatever your team is calling those that are doing this, ML engineers, um, how, do you, how do you make that domain knowledge transfer happen in an efficient way that keeps the business pushing forward? So this is part of the kind of the evolution of how uh, some of these software systems are gonna be built. If, if machine learning will play a role moving forward in many of these systems, then 
uh, a lot of a lot of software development may start resembling ML development, which means you know gather data, train a model, evaluate the results, uh, and then and then uh, repeat, rinse rinse and repeat. But then that might also mean consulting with domain experts who know uh, who know what data might be useful, and uh, and actually honestly. Uh, in many cases, uh, data is not perfectly clean in the beginning. You have to kind of uh, clean the data and prepare it. And there, 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 again, that's where the domain experts might be helpful to you. So then uh, one trend that I am seeing is that uh, in, the, in the case of data preparation and uh, data cleaning, uh, companies are starting to use tools that actually use machine learning because uh, you have a set of domain experts, they can label a few examples and then maybe a system will automatically kind of uh, go through the rest of the data and try to uh, extract similar examples. Um, and so yes, so I think that uh, domain knowledge at least uh, is going to be essential to the extent that uh, uh, we're not uh, talking about uh, uh, general intelligence here, we're talking about very fine, narrow and, and tuned systems uh, that can help companies uh, automate uh, many, many very specific workflows. So another example I'd like to cite is uh, robotic process automation. I don't know if you're familiar with, I this, am, yes. with this term, right? So, so it, it, I think uh, it's a mistake to think that robotic process automation is something that uh, uh, will be directed from above, right? Because it's. I think it's got to be a ground from the ground up. I, I think that. I think it's a terribly name field, though. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very confusing for most people to understand. Because it. it's the uh, fr the those uh, workers who are in the uh, front lines who know which tasks are repetitive. Absolutely. And if you explain to them enough about uh, at a high level what the current technologies are capable of doing, they can help you identify which of these workflows uh, lend themselves to automation or partial automation, right? Sure. So Because may, maybe uh, it won't be full automation, right? So, so one of the things that, that I'm kind of extracting from, from your explanation is there's this kind of democratization of the technology as it's becoming widespread and, and finding many, many use cases, even within a given organization, but you're seeing it all over. Um, I think, uh, is it fair to say that, um, that this field, and I'm kind of talking about deep learning as it's finding more and more use cases, it's going to become somewhat synonymous with software development in the sense that um, the, the, you're, as you have ML engineers uh, become part of that team as a standard thing, it's no longer the, the cool new uh, hotness that you're, that you're doing, but it's just an everyday thing down the road um, that you're really going to have, neural computing is really kind of the future versus the deterministic, you know, I have all my if then and case statements of the past that neural computing will be part of many, many software stacks out there. Uh, I would say machine learning, because uh, as you know, uh, uh, right now, of course, deep learning is uh, uh, very successful in many, many areas of, uh, of uh, that, that affect companies like computer vision, speech recognition, and text. But uh, you know, uh, if you follow the history of machine learning, uh, there are uh, there are things that go in and out of fashion. Although right now, it, it, we're not seeing anything. 
coming close to challenging deep learning in a variety of tasks, right? So, sure, but, but that's but, probably. But I that's agree not with a you. that's not a given. I think the 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 workflow will probably remain the same to the extent that machine learning is part of software development. That workflow will be yeah, the same. It's becoming a part of everyday life that companies are using in production for for all these areas. Yeah, and so actually, one of the things that we aspire for in this conference uh, is to kind of. Uh, so we have, so we have in this conference, the AI conference, the O'Reilly AI conference, we have a business summit. So we have content for decision makers and managers, so the, they know uh, uh, what other people are doing. So case studies, but also give them high-level overviews of in, important topics through executive briefings. Uh, but we also have content for developers who are not data experts who just want to build uh, build things. Um, but then also, uh, you know, we want to uh, show people the bleeding edge. So we have researchers and uh, machine learning experts. So one, one other area I think that uh, uh, I've been trying to emphasize is this notion that uh, when it comes to machine learning, I think companies are coming to realize that uh, it's not a simple uh, op uh, trying to optimize some business metric or some um, statistical metric, right? So there's other important considerations which over the last year I've been giving these, uh, I've been trying to give talks around this notion of managing risk. And I've been collecting a bunch of these uh, other considerations like fairness and bias, uh, privacy and security, safety and reliability, explainability, right? So, so, when, so if you take uh, any one of these uh, considerations uh, and risks and you, and, and you imagine yourself uh, as a company that has begun to use more and more machine learning, then you start realizing, oh, I really need the foundational technologies, right? So for example, uh, you look at uh, security, right? So your machine learning model gets attacked by an adversary or starts uh, behaving weirdly. Well, now you gotta retrace back. So I need tools that will allow me to uh, go all the way back and audit Maybe now we're talking about data governance, data lineage, right? So where did this data come from? And things like this. So a lot of these foundational technologies are not, ju are not just important because you want uh, uh, to do more and more machine learning, but it also will allow you to manage risks that come with uh, having a lot of machine learning. This episode is brought to you by discover.bot. Learn everything there is to know about bots at discover.bot slash practicallyi. Discover.bot was built by Amazon Registry Services as an online community for bot creators and makers of all skill levels to learn from one another, to share stories, and they regularly publish guides and resources to answer questions like how to set up payments to your bot, how to stop shopping cart abandonment, what KPIs are worth measuring, how to write an engaging chatbot dialogue. You can even register .bot domains there. Learn more and explore this huge library of bot resources at discover.bot slash practical AI. Again, discover.bot slash practical AI. So referencing back to the ebook, I was noticing that you had some sections on building block technologies and data types. 
Um, and I was noticing within that, you kind of list kind of the uh, the respondents, what they were using. Um, and, and some of them, you know, like supervised learning was right there at the top and deep learning. Um, and then it kind of shows the, the usage of each. I noticed um, down here that um, uh, reinforcement learning was still fairly low on the list, and yet we're talking about it so much uh, you know, out there in, in conferences and talks, you know, we've really seen uh, an enormous interest over the last year or so, maybe two years, uh, in reinforcement learning. Uh, do you see deep learning and reinforcement learning kind of together going forward? Do you think we'll see that rise up on the list? Or what, what other, I'll leave it a little bit more open-ended, what other technologies are you seeing uh, in the future uh, as likely uh, use cases? So I think that, uh, I think that uh, I, I would say reinforcement learning right now as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the tools are improving and, uh, and uh, becoming more accessible, so that might let companies uh, play around with it some more. And then I think uh, over the next six to 12 months, we're gonna hear companies share what they've done, and so that's always inspiring, because it's one thing to hear uh, that reinforcement learning is being used for AlphaGo or for a self-driving car, but if you hear an enterprise in your own industry using it, so that may uh, cause you to take pause and 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 uh, try to understand. Okay, so how did they do it? What did they use? And can we do it ourselves? Right. So uh, I think we need we need companies to start talking about uh, how they use reinforcement learning, and we're be going to begin to see that. So as I mentioned earlier, right. So the uh, Ray already has. Uh, uh, use cases in production. They're going to start, the team from Berkeley Rice Lab is going to start uh, trying to convince some of these users to write blog posts. Uh, and some of them are enterprise users, so that might inspire uh, people to jump in. But uh, I think in the short term, uh, more companies are probably going to start playing around with deep learning, because that, that seems to be at a point where you can really relate, you can uh, if you're in a specific industry, chances are there's a company who's using it that you can really relate to. So it, it sounds like you kind of mentioned that you went back into tools and, and having those, those use cases that companies are doing out there. So would it be fair to say that uh, one of the reasons for deep learning that maybe things like reinforcement learning need and probably will get in the near future are having a set of tools out there that are easy, accessible and easy to use so they can start experimenting along with that, probably data sets that are applicable to that? Uh, oh, so, so with reinforcement learning, actually, uh, usually you need, uh, usually involves a simulation environment. Yeah, that's true. Because it's, a, that's true. it's, a, it's more of a... Uh, an agent, agent, agent interacting with an environment and you have a reward function and, and you're trying to learn a policy, which is basically what to do given the certain settings of the environment, right? So I think, uh, so it's a combination of tools, right? So you have uh, a Ray, which I mentioned earlier, which will give you the RL, which will allow you to learn uh, the policy but you need to have a simulation environment in order to uh, play around, or, your, or the ability to simulate data, right? Um, but I think the, the, the main thing uh, is that uh, what, what motivates companies is seeing their peers use something and, and, and uh, seeing how, uh, how much reward, so the reward function of, the, of their peers, right? So if you see, if you're in financial services and you hear Ant Finance has used Ray to, 
to do uh, real-time recommendations again, uh, you know, of users interacting and, uh, and learning from live data, then you might be more motivated, right? As opposed to hearing about it uh, being used for AlphaGo. Gotcha. Um, there's, I wanted to actually also go back to something else you mentioned earlier. Uh, you were talking about risk in general, um, and, and there are different variations. There's, there's bias. Uh, there's uh, there's the ethical and moral considerations of how you're there, using data. There, there's security and adversaries and privacy. Absolutely, right. uh, the concept of of AI safety, where you know how you use how you use it in benevolent ways, uh, what, or not just benevolent ways. So AI safety also refers to safe systems. So so if you have AI in mission critical situations, uh, we don't have them yet. And I probably won't uh, write a plane yet that uses uh, completely relies just on deep learning and not control theory. But uh, uh, you can imagine deploying these systems in environments where they can uh, kill people. Sure. But, yeah. But and, you, and, and you need you need error bars and robustness and really the same types of uh, discipline that a lot of these. Uh, uh, fields of engineering have had to go through and learn. Right? That's so, true. And yeah. for what it's worth, uh, for the record, the FAA doesn't actually allow, they will not, they will not uh, <laughs> certify uh, a, a neural network at this point because of the black box component. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the big challenges. Working for a, a company that's in, in, in yeah. aeronautical at Lockheed Martin, uh, that's certainly a, a big challenge is being able to say, uh, to, to, to pass all the certifications uh, you know, well enough both for ourselves and for FAA requirements. So actually, uh, the the notion of explainability is interesting because uh, people think about it as in terms of uh, you know the need to understand how, uh, what the black box is doing from uh, a variety of angles, right? So one is uh, think about it from the end user's perspective, right? So uh, if uh, if the end user can has some level of understanding about what the system is doing, they're more likely to use it, probably more comfortable. Um, but also maybe their explainability might help you if things go wrong and you have to audit the system and go back and understand how you can improve it and, and, and things like this. But uh, uh, so there's a bunch of startups working on explainability for uh, machine learning and deep learning. Um, and uh, I've always tried to uh, get them to think about it more ambitiously, which is, you know, don't aim your tools at the model builders and the data engineers, the machine learning engineers and data scientists in the back end and helping them understand how their model is working and, and therefore help them improve their model, which is great. But uh, make yourself uh, have a role for the end user, right? So uh, if I have a machine learning product uh, or a product in the enterprise that uh, I want more people in the company to use. Maybe there's a explainability widget that allows them to get more comfortable so that they end up using the system more. Right? Gotcha. So, yeah. um, and as we kind of wind up here, uh, I want to ask kind of a very high in the sky, open-ended question and just kind of where you, you have this opportunity to, to talk to so many different companies um, and get perspectives. I'd, I'd love it if you would just kind of share where you think, how, how you think this field is going to evolve over, over you know, so the, the relatively near future, over the next few years. I'm not asking for long-term um, prediction, but where do you think we're going um, as a kind of in an overview, as a summary? What, how, do you, how do you see this field evolving? So I think so on the research side, so the researchers will continue to publish at a furious pace, right? So uh, 
and and uh, a lot of that uh, a lot of that research is now in the open, uh, usually with uh, code using uh, open source libraries, so people can take advantage of that research. Um, on the enterprise side, I think uh, companies will will continue to struggle if they don't understand the limitations of these technologies uh, and understand how they how they work and uh, and how how these models get built. Um, so I think there's a certain level of education that needs to take place across the company, not just not just the technologists. Um, and then I think uh, as companies become more comfortable with machine learning and AI, they'll they'll realize they need to build some of these foundational pieces. But also the industry needs to uh, help companies by building better tools for machine learning development, model governance, model operations, and frankly automation as well. Right. So. Uh, I don't, it's no surprise that uh, one of the areas in technology where you're seeing a lot of automation is in data science and data engineering itself, right? Because uh, these are the people who understand this technology and what are they going to do? They're going to automate the things that they can automate, right? Absolutely. So uh, to the extent that uh, uh, you're studying data science today, uh, don't be surprised if by the time you graduate, some of the things you studied have been automated. Yes, yeah. I, I would agree with that. I think that process is accelerating too. Right. So, well, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation with you. Um, I know you have been, I, I, as I've watched you, you've been very busy through this conference uh, as the program chair. So thanks for taking a few minutes uh, to talk with me about this. And uh, if, if viewers want to reach, uh, or, sorry, listeners want to reach out to you, how can they access you? Are you out on social media or anything? Yeah, so my Twitter handle is impossible to remember. It's at Big Data. And then if you <laughs> want to reach one. me on, on email, I have an impossibly hard to remember email address, datascientist.gmail.com. That, those are two fantastic handles there. So, well, thank you very much, and uh, I'll let you get back to the conference. Thank you. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Practically AI. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor, go on iTunes, give us a rating, go in your podcast app and favorite it. If you are on Twitter or a social network, share a link with a friend, whatever you gotta do, share the show with a friend if you enjoyed it. And bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And we catch our errors before our users do here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers at linode.com slash changelog. Check them out, support this show. This episode is hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com. When you go there, pop in your email address, get our weekly email keeping you up to date with the news and podcasts for developers in your inbox every single week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Congratulations, you've listened all the way to the end of the show. And guess what? Got a little surprise for you. Here's a preview of Brain Science, our upcoming podcast coming out very soon. The easiest way to subscribe is to subscribe to our master feed at thechangelog.com slash master. Get all of our podcasts in one single feed, plus some extras that only hit the master feed, including Brain Science. 
Brain Science is a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain so we can understand things like behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and this thing we call the human condition. It's hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives? Here we go. As humans, one of the things that separate us from any other animal out there is the fact that we have language, we have words, and we have super powerful words that truly change how we feel and how we make other people feel. If the words we say have so much potential to influence ourselves and the world around us, how do we begin to understand the power of words? So words really are the thing that separates us from all other animals. Because, right, sharks, bats, dogs, lizards, they don't talk. And this is really critical when it comes to managing our moods and our feelings. One of the things um, that I sort of talk about, or even I mentioned earlier, about the way in which we file things in our mind according to feelings, this is exactly how we differentiate it, too. Thinking about uh, an example like with professional athletes, they, you might say that they get anxious, like before a mm-hmm. race or before, you know, uh, a run or a dive. But using that word, it, it's not really a threat, right? But their their brain would be like, oh, I'm nervous. And now I start this whole sequence of events in my body. Whereas if I just change the word to like, I'm anticipating or I'm excited, it creates a different sort of rollout of emotions as well as physiological responses. I mean, I'm anxious about going to Disneyland is not usually what we say, right? I'm excited. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So it then puts a lid on or files things differently in our mind, which then changes how we feel about it. So in my field in psychology, I would say, we would say name it to tame it. The better I can name different feelings, the more I can tame whatever emotion that is. And so then I'm not really stuck living in this sort of mammal and reptile lane where I'm always just flipping my lid, I'm reactive, I'm angry, or I'm sad, but rather I can go, I recognize this is how I'm feeling, or like I'm, I'm afraid of some other threat, like losing my job. And I can go, you know what, here's the words I can use to talk to myself about that fear so that I'm not just stuck feeling afraid of a possible threat, which has never occurred yet. You use this concept too to to say customized thinking. I'm not sure I fully understand what you mean by customized thinking. What do you mean by that? Well, because we are human, we do have the power of choice, which is super powerful. Like nobody has to tell you how you need to think or how you need to feel, right? And like your version of success might be very different than mine, which is going to impact my discernment my choices and the direction I'm headed. And so when you think about customized, right? I mean, you can customize a car, you can customize your order at a restaurant. Like it really is tailored specifically to you and going, how do I want to think and how do I want to feel? One example I consider is I want to always, I want every day of the week to feel like I do on the weekend. Because to me, the weekend feels great. I'm with my family. I don't, I'm not sort of running things with such a tight timeline. And there's just a different sort of ethereal vibe 
to the weekend. Right. And I think, why does that only have to exist on the weekend? Yeah. Well, I want that every day. Why is that? I want that every day too. <laughs> well, and I think part of it is really our attitude and our expectations. I mean, there are legitimate threats all around us, but it doesn't help me do me or do my life any better if I am only focused on threats. So I want to practice changing the channel in my mind that says, hey, yeah, I see that potential job loss, but I also see I'm with my family right now. And right now, nobody can take sort of what I've been through and how I feel away from me. I'm in charge of how I feel. So I'm going to do things that actually contribute to feeling better. So how, how do we apply this name entertainment idea to this model then? Because maybe if you name the week, the weekend, can you change how you feel about it? Because that's really what it's about. It's like, how do we take, you know, the labels we apply things to things, the names we give things, the words we use, the choices, what I think we might call nuance. I'm not really sure how you, how, how you put that into play with the power of words, but the difference between, like you said before, being anxious or being excited, you know, fundamentally, it's almost the same feeling. But, you know, from a nuance level, it's very different. You know, it's, it's one direction or the other of excitement, you know, negative excitement potentially or positive excitement. How do we apply that to customized thinking? Well, I think that's a great way to say it, Adam. I really like that nuance because what we're looking for, even as I talk about the different brains, we want a symphony. I mean, I'm not going to fire the woodwind section because I don't like a violin, Right. So I don't want to fire a certain part of my brain like you're not really helpful. I don't need to see that. But what we need is a sense of congruence. And so, sure, not every day of the week can feel exactly like the weekend. So I'm not going to say this is how I feel, but I have to actually believe it for it to impact my mind, my brain and my body in the way in which I desire it to. And so I might use the words like, I strive for every day to have a feeling that reminds me of exactly how I feel on the weekend so that I don't lose sight that like every day really is a gift and I get to enjoy every day of my life to some degree. And so another example might be, I'm living out in the Pacific Northwest. A lot of people have negative feelings about the weather. Imagine that. (laughs) But so if someone were to say that they just need to learn to love it, that's going to create what we call cognitive dissonance. It doesn't fit. So it doesn't matter how much I'm like, oh, I I do love the gray. I do love the clouds. It's not going to jive with me. And so it won't stick. So instead, I can say, I love the way in which the rain creates the green. And in the summer, when it is green, it is amazing. This idea of learning to live with it, though, get over it, uh, it is what it is. Uh, like, there's so many phrases we use to say just that, like, just learn to live with it. What is it called again? Cognitive dissonance. And what does that mean when you play it out? It doesn't go together. Okay. So that if you're like, oh, just just do it, you just need to get over it. Like, that really isn't helpful either because your body's giving you a signal and, and your brain is telling you, I don't like this sensation. I don't like how this feels. I mean, a lot of people will say, oh, I just hate the gray and the gray is just overwhelming. And so we have to go, well, what's my emotional buy-in? 
Like, what what do I like? How does that even allow me to enjoy something else? And so I'm going to look at going, you know what? I really like that I get to wear warm clothes or I really do love my coffee because it's for such a long time, it's gray and rainy. I want to be inside by a fire drinking my coffee. Right. And so how can I look for going, you know what? If I do these things I, I might not want to do, I do get some more of what I do want to do. And so it's really almost like a bartering system in your brain of saying, if you do this thing you don't like, you get this thing you you do like. Or, you know, I know you don't have to make yourself do this thing unless you can see a way in which it actually benefits you or speaks to you emotionally. Everything, Adam, really has to have this emotional buy-in. Mm. And if there's no good emotion, no really the primary neuro neurochemical in our brain is dopamine for feeling good. I don't get some hit of dopamine. My brain's going to be like, it's not worth it. And I'm not going to do it. Period. That's a preview of brain science. If you love where we're going with this, send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released. Email us at editors at changelaw.com in the subject line, put in all caps, brain science with a couple bangs if you're really excited you can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed at the changelog.com master or search in your podcast app for changelog master you'll find it subscribe get all of our shows and even those that only hit the master feed again changelog.com master